Hey everybody, Brad Stevens here, founder and CEO of Outsource Access. We help companies redefine how they scale with offshore affordable staff from the Philippines. Congrats to all fellow winners of the 2023 Real Leaders Impact Awards. We are proud to be among you. About 10 years ago, I woke up to a major growth problem in my last business. Cash was tight, staff was overwhelmed, and tasks were not getting done. Then I discovered the world of offshore virtual staff in the Philippines where English is their second language, so there is no communication or culture gap. I realized outsourcing wasn't just call centers, it was access to college-educated Filipinos to support sales, marketing, operations, customer service, bookkeeping, personal tasks, and more. And in fact, the first woman I hired in the Philippines at 23 is now an award-winning COO of our entire company. It inspired me to launch Outsource Access. One client and YPO member, Ali Jamal, shared their offshore virtual staff Edison automated processes and saved them over 50,000 per year in the first few weeks. It's about finally getting things done and staff focusing on higher value activities. We've grown by over 2,000% in just three and a half years and will double next year. To receive a complimentary outsourcing playbook customized for your industry and to connect with one of our team here at Outsource Access, just visit RedefineScale.com. That's RedefineScale.com or text the word SCALE to 770-954-8440. Two months after hiring my first staff, she sent me a picture of shoes she bought for low-income children because of the opportunity. And now we support thousands of families and the environment with United Nations SDG projects. I'm proud we've grown with impact. To learn more, visit RedefineScale.com. Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. Good answers to the questions, I hope, um, and we'll see where it goes. Okay, well, let's knock this one out of the park in three, two, one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And joining us today, folks, we've got Scott Farber, the founder and CEO of Mental Health Partnerships. Scott, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much, Kevin. Excited to chat. Very excited. Looking forward to this chat. And now, we already talked about Lewiston, Idaho, out of all places. So I want you to be a little bit more descriptive in terms of who Scott Farber is, where you come from, your origins, your backgrounds. But more importantly, Scott, something where some time where you faced adversity. When I ask that question, what comes to mind? Absolutely. I think it's a great place to start. It's uh, a lot of the motivation for what we do right now. Uh, I was born and raised in and around New York City, uh, went to high school in Pennsylvania, got a full scholarship to college, lived in South America, been through a lot of places, but I've also been through a lot of challenges. And in uh, 2017, I had just buried the sixth of my close friends um, over the course of three years, uh, drugs, alcohol, death by suicide. And I'm not alone. Uh, a lot of folks probably watching or just out in the country have faced those moments of adversity. And I was incredibly lucky as I was trying to process that. I had some really caring folks in my circle who really leaned in to give me some guidance and give me a push in the right direction. Um, 
a conversation that really jumps out for not only struggling through some challenges, but getting the support and the push in the right direction. I sitting down with a mentor of mine, amazing woman, Pam Wolf, a serial entrepreneur. And I was telling her everything that I was up to, but I was leaving out all that personal stuff as if everything in life is just about business or just about a professional experience. And she interrupted me and she said, Scott, uh, you just need to be quiet here for a minute. Actually, she had some other choice words, but we'll leave it there for the moment. I said, I've known you a decade. And um, on some level, it's the same story, different day. You've been running so far and so fast in one direction. I don't think you're really looking around. And there are a couple of lessons I'd like you to learn now. Uh, number one, bigger doesn't mean better. Number two, more does not mean that you're winning. Number three, you're not nearly as successful as you think you are or that you tell people that you are. Number four, I don't think you're happy. And number five, you look terrible. And I think what was really rooted in that, first of all, super hard to hear, but for, uh, for anybody in life that has a mentor that could just tell you like it is, couldn't be more grateful. What that did, though, is it really shifted my perspective in terms of how I could think about impact in my life and how I could take the personal challenges and adversities that I was facing and transmit them into something more constructive that really was serving others in the process. And so when I think about those challenges, it's so easy to fall into that sense of woe is me. But when you can kind of put your arms around those challenges, realize that you're not alone, you can channel them into something more productive. And during the course of that conversation, she gave me some really strong encouragement to take a step back from the work that I was doing in education. And I love what we built, focus on college access, leaning into a whole bunch of folks who are looking for a next opportunity the same way I was given that in terms of my college education. And in looking through that lens and seeing those challenges that folks were facing all around, she encouraged me to say, are there other ways for me to find impact? And she sent me off on a homework assignment. And for 30 days, I sat down with somebody in my life who had a job that I didn't have to just kind of inform me what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And what I started to realize is that those folks that were involved in mental and behavioral health, those that were really working on trying to integrate those challenges into education or into the medical establishment, it really resonated with me. So I think about that conversation. I think about the I'd say the pain and the suffering that I walked into with that moment. And then I think about how on the other side of that conversation, I was now exposed to this whole new world. And one of the conversations I had was a gentleman, Dr. Mike Jelinek, who's the former chief of uh, adolescent and child psychiatry at Mass General. And I asked him if he were going to have an impact on mental health, what would he set as a North Star? He said, Scott, have you ever seen the Peanuts comic strip? Yeah. It's like, you know, the one where Lucy's in that little lemonade stand, it says the doctor is in five cents. He said, yeah, yeah, um, that's your North Star. You need to be on every playground in every community and be that affordable. If you can solve for access, you'll do something really important. At that moment, if I looked backwards, I could see A connecting to B, connecting to C, connecting to D. But while I was on that path, I didn't realize exactly the direction I was running until that moment. And mental health partnership was really born out of that inspired set of conversations from other folks. I think if you make yourself vulnerable and you say, I don't have all the answers, or you make yourself vulnerable and you're willing to take constructive criticism and feedback, it's amazing what the universe can unfold and show you as a path forward.
And so what we really set off to do was try and tie those threads together to figure out where we could integrate into communities and connect not just with outpatient mental health, but with institutions like schools and hospitals and assisted living facilities so that we could really bring the struggles that we all face on a day-to-day -day basis and connect them to solutions that were really right to your front door or were there right at your fingertips. It's a powerful message and, and so many life lessons packed into that, that opening monologue. Uh, the power of I don't know, connecting the docs backwards, being inside the bottle, the labels on the outside, I didn't really know what was going on. And I think that's also a parallel to like just human beings in general. We're complicated creatures, Scott. Yeah. And people are more likely to take care of their pets as opposed to if they get hurt or sick, they won't go to the hospital. You know, it, it, it's just, a, it's a, just people are complicated. And I like that bringing that up because of the problem of access. Why is it that people would take a dog to a veterinarian but not take themselves into the hospital? Was it affordability? Was it time? Was it knowledge? What are some of those things about access that you wanted to disrupt? I think the short answer is it's all of those things. Uh, when I think about the friends that I lost, uh, we're they're thinking about folks, classmates of mine from Harvard, folks that had really good jobs, folks that had families, children, and you would imagine they might be able to the ones most positioned to find access. But in this country, we just have such a massive shortage. We only met about 25% of the need for mental and behavioral health before the pandemic, forgetting about where we sit right now. Uh, my partner, uh, Dr. Warren Phillips, he's our chief clinical officer, he uses this statistic all the time, we're 250,000 bodies short to be able to serve the need. So the access point is 100% top of a lot of folks' lists. Can they actually even find the person they need when they need them? But it's more than that. When we think about access, the other elements that play into it would be insurance coverage and affordability. A lot of folks have insurance, and that doesn't mean that every provider accepts that insurance. On the provider side and on the practice side, it can often be extremely complicated and expensive to take insurance. On top of that, the reimbursements vary so widely. If you're Medicaid and you're looking for a spot and a provider is comparing that pay reimbursement to a commercial plan or cash pay, they're making choices based on what makes sense for their financial practice. So now the access isn't just, are there enough folks? It's, can you actually afford to get in the door? Now you add on top of that a stigma that has followed mental and behavioral health challenges for, we'll call it almost all of modern history. And only in the last five, 10, 15 years has the conversation shifted. So, so many of us suffered in silence because we didn't really have a vocabulary for it. Uh, growing up, I had a lot of challenges um, uh, just in my family and in my personal life. And in high school, when I started facing my first really big issues, I didn't even know how to ask for help or where I would go. So for a lot of folks that are sitting my generation and older, this wasn't part of the conversation. So you look at access, you look at affordability, and then you look at that awareness piece you put all of those together, and I think what you have is a recipe that keeps a lot of folks from getting the, need, the resources they need when they need them. And what we've gotten, I think really lucky is the wrong word, but let's just say there's an opportunity inside and post the pandemic where this conversation is showing up in schools, in families, in the workplace, on a podcast like this, 
this is really now something that we're recognized doesn't sit separate from our challenges in life. I think you hit the nail on the head. We're humans. This is what rattles around our minds on a daily basis. And because we find ourselves so often struggling to get the help we need when we need it, I think we often use that go it alone sort of strategy, which then takes our energy and channels it into taking care of our pet or making sure the house is clean or focusing more on work. And we lose that thread of self-care, which is so interesting because if you cut your hand, you'd immediately go find a Band-Aid. If you hurt your foot, you'd have it go checked out. But for so long, we've just put the brain in another box. And I think that's really kept folks from uh, the help that they really need, but also kept the industry from growing to meet that need. I've been really excited over the last, even just five years, um, the focus on mental health has brought a lot of great um, uh, well, individuals, companies, uh, more clinicians, academics just into the space to say, what do we need to do differently? Because we're at a crisis point. So I would say that in all of those challenges, there is really that other half of, okay, where can we go from here? And it's a, it's a huge issue. And one of the reasons we wanted to, to bring you on and have you share this story, um, you know, before the pandemic, it was a huge issue. And then the pandemic kind of like uh, took the, I guess, the media and the communications away from it, but it also enhanced the issue even more. And, and to the point where is this ever going to stop? I mean, whether it's, um, you know, opioid addiction, or it's just uh, the basic needs of uh, of people uh, going through psychological issues. Um, this is not going to stop anytime soon. So, based on what you were saying, Scott, in terms of um, bigger doesn't mean better, and uh, in, in uh, your early lessons as an entrepreneur, what is your new approach to this issue, and how are you going about growing a business that can sustain some of these results? I think it's a really, really great question. And our focus is partnering with community mental health practices in an outpatient setting to help build scale, not because we need to be a giant hospital system, but for so long, the service delivery model has been a single shingle or a handful of practitioners that come together as a group. But when we take a look at the modalities that have really great impact, it's seldom in isolation. It's often in conjunction with other uh, treatments. If you're showing up for, let's say, a drug addiction challenge, it's not enough to just go to a rehab facility and then on the other side of a 28-day stay or a 60-day stay or a 90-day stay, you're now cured. Dual diagnosis is a thing. It's often underlying trauma. It's often other co-occurring morbidities like say depression. And so we're getting wiser, I think, in trying to bring more services and more expertise under one roof. Our first partnership with Central Iowa Psychological Services, we were attracted to the group because they had uh, therapists, psychologists, we're doing uh, psychological testing, providing a range of, of supports. What we then really leaned into to add was adding nurse practitioners so that we could focus on medication management, add psychiatric interventions like TMS or esketamine, which is uh, the ketamine inhalants bravado from Johnson & Johnson covered by insurance. We wanted to be able to expand those pieces. So we look at this as a community solution that syncs up greater expertise so that a single place can feel more comprehensive. 
if you're a family and your son is struggling in school, well, there might be some psychological testing that would be helpful to identify underlying challenges. But you might also have Uncle Joe who is struggling with alcohol, or you might have Grandma Jane that's facing some sort of uh, depression from isolation. All of those can be met in one place without us necessarily having to be across the country in every geography. So the business model that we're really focused on is can we get a geographic concentration that also brings collaborative and integrated care to more people? And as we sync up with those community outpatient mental health resources, that Project Lucy philosophy also has us partnering directly with school districts because a lot of our schools are just under-resourced with providers. So we can be on-site for a school to help adolescents. I think in this country, we've focused for so long on better filled brains. We've lost some of the thread on better formed brains. And so our model really sits on the community partnership level as well. We partner with a number of area hospitals and that becomes a really powerful source of treatment enhancement for them. If you don't have experts sitting inside of your emergency department, it's very difficult for you to be able to diagnose uh, perhaps somebody on the, the autism spectrum or with bipolar disorder or that might have a number of interrelated challenges. You might only see that one acute incident. So we're finding the community partners to sync up with the outpatient offices. And that becomes a virtuous ecosystem. Right now we're working with a large hospital network so that we can serve the entire state of Iowa. And this is something that's extremely important when we take a look at this country is that different geographies have different needs. One of our attractions to Iowa for us to be able to test this model is that we can serve urban, suburban, and rural populations in close proximity. That to us is supposed to be able to set a model that could be replicated in other places. We don't have to go do this everywhere for us to perhaps be part of a solution that others can see, draw lessons from, and then deploy somewhere else. And, and, and I want to ask you a question around like just measurements, how you're measuring these things like that, because mm -hmm. it, it can be frustrating. Um, and yeah, I think like the average time and obviously mental health is everything from autism to addiction, right? Um but the average time someone will go to rehab for addiction is about nine times. I, I currently have a family member in the outpatient uh, part of this continuum of care. And for folks listening and out there, and Scott, help me if I have this wrong, but the continuum of care in my mind is pre-use, use, inpatient, outpatient, and then community. So it's like pre-use would be preventative uh, drugs you can take, education, psychology, use is they've done it they've taken it something had happened maybe to get court ordered into inpatient treatment for 90 days and then now they're in the outpatient phasing them out and then obviously to sustain something like this they need to be surrounded by community i'm curious about your results because there's so many frustrated parents out there there's so many um people that uh will go through something like this and then they'll relapse again how do you look at results? How do you know something is working? 
It's such an important question. Um, we can't be of the mindset that simply because we're showing up and delivering something that is working. And I think for a really long time, and this isn't unique to mental and behavioral health, this is broadly speaking in healthcare, we weren't necessarily aligned to outcomes. It was a fee-for-service model. As that shift over the last decade or so has created a greater focus on value-based care, are we actually delivering value or outcome measurements? Are we getting to successful outcomes? That conversation has really not started to come front and center on payers and the expectations for delivery of quality, not just delivery of service. I think what you hit on in terms of that continuum is really, really important and central for how we can understand how to get better. If we just try and find a single intervention point, we're not gonna create lasting success. We need to put those preventative measures in place. And that's about awareness. That's starting with conversations around resilience early on in life. That's about having conversations around addiction before we've already hit the wall. But we also need to be able to not lose the thread of seeing when we deliver a service, are we holding ourselves accountable? So that outcome measurement is something we believe deeply in. Our substance use services are CARF accredited. So we wanna make sure that we've got a high standard that's got a third party oversight. That's really, really important so that we're not just self uh, testifying how good we are. But we've also really embraced digital outcome measures. And part of that is to be able to measure uh, performance over time. If you're looking at a PHQ-9 for depression and somebody is scoring really highly, indicating some uh, moderate to acute depression, and we want to say that um, Spravato is a good treatment to help folks that are sitting in those circumstances, we want to measure that those PHQ-9 scores started at 15 and are now landing at 2. That is a massive shift. And so we have folks coming into our office, and this will bring us to tears, saying this is the first time in a decade that I felt like I could breathe, mm. or this is the first sure. time in my relationship that I felt present. So we believe in those outcome measures. We publish those where possible, obviously always protecting uh, PHI, personal information. Um, but then in the aggregate, we could take a look and say, this intervention yielded really great results, and we hold ourselves accountable. I think all we want to do is get better and nothing succeeds like success. So if we can see what's working, that can then be replicated or expanded. And, and just now internally, Scott, for you as a leader in your organization, how are you inspiring uh, success? How are you inspiring a vision to galvanize your team to transform more of these outcomes? Um probably in a couple of different ways. Uh, I'd start probably uh, pointing for a second to what we talk about all the time internally is that patients and providers come first. Now that's easy to say. There's that Jim Rohn quote, there are only three colors, 10 digits and seven notes. It's what we do with them that really matters. When you say providers and patients first, how does that really align with a mission? What's the, the how? We know why that matters. What's the how? So to keep folks really excited there and to keep them um, uh, feeling inspired, uh, what we're looking in terms of delivering for a patient experience, we want this to be multidisciplinary, right? We wanna be able to provide all of those different services because the whole person care is really central to our mission. Um, uh, we wanna make sure that when we're talking about uh, keeping that mission front and center for the providers, that they feel a part of the team. So a couple of things that we did that I feel is pretty different than others 
Um, a lot of folks in the space and outpatient work on a commission basis. But if you're on a commission basis, then it's hard for you to figure out where to take PTO because you're always working to make that next paycheck. Well, what we've seen in the data is that without PTO, folks in the space burn out. Mm. So say providers first, we need to create pay and compensation that recognizes that. So the guaranteed salary can give peace of mind. The PTO can lead to self-care. And then what we did and felt this was really important as an entrepreneur, I know what motivates me, you need to be part of ownership. So we granted options to our providers. And it doesn't matter if you're answering the phone or you're in acute session, you're part of the team. And so what we also did in kind of the method methodology for granting those options is look at it in terms of longevity and commitment to the mission, not revenue produced. So I think something that's pretty important to how we think about mission is, are we living that mission in the processes that we deliver? If we talk about whole person care, do we actually have all of those modalities? If we talk about providers being central, do they have a voice? Are they compensated? And do they sit on the inside? So I think those are a couple of things that we do a bit differently. And that's really, I think, yielded a greater team feel. And as we've added practices, we started with one, we're now at six. As we've added practices, the clinicians, as they connect, as they see themselves as part of a larger family and not necessarily just rooted at their desk, I think that's allowed us to say, our mission is better together. And as we continue to grow, we have to reinforce that. I love that. It, it makes sense, right? Uh, you're taking ownership of the company. You're, you're, you're looking at yourself as an owner now versus someone who's just looking to get a sale. Um, I love that. Let's bring this home, Scott Farber. What is your definition of a real leader? I've reflected on this quite a bit since we first talked and I started to imagine what do those words really mean? The first definition I ever gave for leadership uh, was for a presentation that I found from about 20 years ago. And I said, what makes a leader is you got three skills, ambition, the ability to embrace failure, and the ability to stay committed. And I thought about that through the lens of we're all gonna make a mistake. Can you still dust yourself off and continue to follow through? I've evolved a bit in my thinking for what makes a real leader. Those are some interesting attributes, but I think something that I hadn't appreciated in my younger years, and I think this goes, every entrepreneur goes through this. You, you think you have all the answers. It's, you know, you have the real plan and then you get a little older and a little wiser and a little more humble perhaps. And so I would add into that real leadership, self-awareness and an appreciation for servant leadership. I think too often we put leaders in the box of breaking through walls and being the front explorer without necessarily appreciating the idea that we sit in this seat to serve someone else. If you're in this seat as a leader, as a CEO to serve yourself, you're not gonna succeed. And your mission is probably not aligned with who you are and what you want to achieve for everybody else. I was inspired by a guy named Sean Lambert um, who started Homes of Hope and a really good friend of mine, Dave Lindsay, who started uh, another great company, Defenders. And both of them really emphasize the servant leadership aspect. That doesn't mean that you're walking, you're getting walked all over by people, but it does mean that every day that you get up and you're not necessarily first. If you're a real leader, you're putting your team, you're putting your users or your customers or your family of colleagues 
before yourself. And more than anything, that mission's got to come before you or anybody else. Well put, very powerful. For Scott Farber, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there, serve others, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Kevin. Hey, Real Leaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to realleaders.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses, and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.